Hello to today's podcast from Mark and Mark on pharmaceutical contamination monitoring. Today we look at the particle path inside the filling machine. I'm Mark Mahauer with 25 years of experience in aseptic fill finish equipment, and I'm together with. Oh, I'm Mark Horwith with 25 years of providing solutions for environmental monitoring. Welcome back, Mark. Um, today, one of the, I think, the biggest topics in the OEM world and uh, uh, the most questionable is the particle path, because this, in one eye, people look at this as uh, it should be not existing at all because it is uh, always a trouble to have it. But at the end, we need it. And um, we're talking about stainless steel, hoses, pipes, isokinetic funnels, valves, H2O2, all this together um, results in everyone having a different path. And today we're going to look into maybe saying what is the best solution um, theoretically. Yeah, and this goes back to um, that the conversation we had right at the beginning of this series, Mark, and that was the one about how things have changed over the years you know it, you can't just put an instrument in a in a filling machine anymore uh, and that way the particle is sampled or the sample is taken right where you want it to be taken even if the location is geographically limited by the size of the machine so with the advent of moving those particle counters underneath and having uh, tubing to take the sample from where it where it's important at the point of risk and then take that sample down to the point of measurement you need sample tubing and this has become you know more important with the release of annex one that talks about maximum length of sample tubings can't exceed a certain length and i'm not going to kind of try and dwell on that length because i'm not overly certain where they got it from all right. Well, then, I am certain where they got it from. <laughs> it was a misinterpretation of Appendix C in ISO 14644. So, you know, it, it the tubing length has become uh, a real questionable issue now because, you know, am I delivering the right sample from the point of risk to the point of instrumentation? Okay, um, let's start in the beginning. The particle is in the air, it comes in from a laminar flow and has to go find its way somewhere into this particle path. So we have an isokinetic funnel, which has to have a certain diameter and the top and on the bottom with a certain angle that the particle can find its way. Yeah, so that um, for start, you know, even so, th even laminar flow is questionable. Now it's unidirectional flow or first air and these are the discussions because it's meant to be the air shower that washes over a process at a nominal speed of 0.45 meters per second plus or minus 20 percent so somewhere between 0.36 and and 0.55 0.54 and the sample probe is designed for 0.45 so the diameter of your sample probe is optimized at 0.45 meters per second but there's plus or minus 20 percent on the allowable flow and we've seen a lot of instances where that variance can be 
as low as 0.23 meters per second. Now, is 0.23 meters per second wrong? Well, not if it can be demonstrated that it's an effective air shower. And that language is written into both the FDA and the EU's regulations. <clears throat> so are we measuring it right? Well, there's as much as there's a certain tolerance on the size or the flow rate, the tolerance of measurement accuracy was set at plus or minus 5% back in the old federal standard days. And so you'd be surprised at how much leniency there is in a standard 1 CFM 28.3 litre per minute probe. It's still accurate <clears throat> all the way down to 0 0.23, 0 0.22 metres per second within that 5% accuracy or within that 5% anisokinetic or non-isokinetic error. So I don't think we should be too worried about the sample probe not meeting my specific flow rate and that's been quite a big issue we've had you know i've had a fair few questions of that over the last few months with um you know with the new annex one being proposed so stick with the probe that it comes with whoever it is your supplier and whatever the flow rate use that probe the other one is isoaxial mark And isoaxial is um, isoaxial is the orientation of the probe. Does it point towards the flow? Okay, so there's no point having a probe pointing perpendicular to flow because at this point the accuracy is significantly reduced, and it's a function of isokinetic flow. So you can imagine as a probe tilts slightly sideways. At 45 degrees, for instance, it now has an elliptical profile to flow and not a round, clean cutting profile to flow. So the sample probe ideally points towards the predominant direction of flow and the, the flow rate is designed to be, you know, whatever the flow it's designed to be. And then there's the tubing. And, yeah, and the right. Let's uh, f uh, summarize sure. the, the point inside an, uh, a septic filling machine. We typically have laminar flow or unidirectional flow, your air shower coming from the top. Um, so we most likely always have the isokinetic probe always pointing directly into it. The yep. height we determine by uh, risk analysis. And, um, and so that means... Uh, we're basically okay with the typical designs we see out there at the moment. Um, most, yeah, most of the time, you know, the sample probe is at about the right sort of height. And then how long can that tube be? And guidance yeah. values say a meter. So anything up to a meter, I think uh, there wouldn't be any issue. The, the, you know, regulators and customers aren't going to start asking additional questions as to, you know, what's the, what are the losses? What, what's the negative? What are the errors? When you get over a meter, that's when you have to start looking at information from suppliers, from industry as to what your maximum tube length needs to be. Uh, and they can help comment on what the tube length is or the tubing installation is that you've put there. <clears throat> 
So the bend radius as well as another key point shouldn't be too tight. Um, and and um, so the overall installation can be reviewed by by us, Mark. You know, you and I can do this. We've done this often enough. Yeah, one question a lot of times comes up is what material is being used? So um, let's start with an isolator because this is the most typical installation at the moment, which is being built uh, to new machines. We have the tube inside the isolator, which is basically holding up the isokinetic probe. So uh, you use their uh, stainless steel and then you go down with the stainless steel as far as possible through the machine plate to the bottom. And then you connect your particle counter with a small, short piece of hose. Um, you will talk about a, a valve there later. Uh, let's say we go directly into the particle counter. Um, you use the beveline hose, for example, um, or if you uh, have H2O2, you need a hose which can resist the H2O2. Um, the beveline, I, as I understand, degrades with H2O2 over time. Yeah, and what we've seen is that certainly in longer lengths, not in the short little, you know, connector pieces, because they 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 have very little surface exposure. But what we have witnessed is long lengths of beveline tubing when exposed to VHB breaks down and you get small white particles coming off the surface of the liner. So, and again, particle counters aren't discriminatory. They don't tell you what's come out of the particle out of the isolator or out of the tubing. They just go particle, particle, particle. They don't know. So, um, yeah, choosing like a Tigon type tubing that would meet the needs or, or a, a dense polyethylene that would meet those needs that give you the resistance that you're looking for, especially over the shorter lengths, that'd be perfect. One thing we cannot forget is the stainless steel when it's manufactured, it's manufactured with oily, greasy uh, materials. Uh, so uh, an inside of this pipe has to be cleaned nice. Um, would you go as far as passivating this or? That depends on, um, you know, on its exposure to, you know, possible other oxidizers. And if we're going to start pulling uh, peroxide through, then that's a pretty strong oxidizing agent in itself. So passivation is probably a good idea for any stainless that's going into these environments uh, just to prevent rust. But also, um, you know, we don't prescribe a finish. You know, we don't say the internal liner has to be electropolished or anything. We typically just talk about smooth um, because sometimes those, you know, the, the, the surface finish can help with the turbulence. So, you know, ideally, we're looking for turbulence down these tubes and um, electropolishing is fine, but uh, we don't we don't stipulate problems associated with different finishes on the inter internal surfaces. All right. And then we come to the valve. Um, there's two ways you can take your H2O2 and go directly through the particle counter. Mm -hmm. Or um, you can go and use a bypass valve and then take the H2O2 process to a different path. So you go bypass the particle counter. Um, I think we can talk uh, on another one in the future about the XR and the condensation um, uh, problem and what you can do to avoid it and so on. But um, today, the valve, 
you need to put it in between. You have a three-way valve. You may have even a ball valve because you want to uh, have no particles being stuck there. And this brings us to several connection points here. You have to connect the tube to the stainless steel isokinetic probe. You have to connect the tube to the particle counter, to the three-way valve on the top, on the bottom, on the side. Um, what do you suggest here that there's no particles being trapped? Um, well, a full flow dry seated ball valve is, you know, clearly the, the, the preference used in these applications because they offer the least amount of change of uh, throat, you know, to the to the path. Because every time you change a diameter, you change the differential pressure and that can cause particles to, you know, uh, attrition in the system itself and the same as with the fittings you know don't use barb fittings use you know kind of like full flow ceiling you know almost like a like a um, joint to joint and a threaded connector rather than barbed connectors because barbed connectors reduce the internal diameter quite significantly so full flow connectors and full flow ball valves and again it should form part of your overall installation assessment that um, you know we've got these valves installed and what's the implication relative to the quality of data that you're going to see and i know we'll, we'll talk about quality of data when looking at alert and action limits in a in another one of these uh, lectures that we're doing so you know it um the the best flow is the one that changes the flow path the least from bends to valves to connectors. Mm -hmm. I understand that. So you're talking about not having any stairs or steps or anything where particles can be accumulated. Yeah, up or, up or down. You know, mm -hmm. even you think if it, it goes from a thin tube to a fat tube, you're doing good, but you now create turbulence on the back edge of that step. So any change of diameter of tubing can cause particle issues. All right. Um, we talked about the tubing bend uh, quickly before you, uh, maybe to, to bring this to a point real quick, you want as straight as possible and as little as bends as possible. Um, if there are bends, there's certain rules to what you can have and what you can't have. Um, there's applications on this on our website, how these bends can look like. Um, so uh, we don't need to go into very detail here. Yeah, Maybe. it's just, you know, it's just no no really sharp bends, Mark. Let's keep them nice, long, sweeping bends. A long radius bend is the one that uh, is spoken about often. Uh, ASTM 50 gives some dimensions for those bends. They, um, they are not necessarily optimized, especially for inside an isolator. So again, work with um, work with us and we can point you in the right direction so then this is this last uh, point the cap on the isokinetic probe we have a cap usually to avoid um, liquid to get in during the cleaning yeah. process because when you clean your isolator you may have a wet mop or something where it can drip uh, liquid in but now you need the cap also if you have no valve because uh, in your pressurization or leak test in the isolator, you need a cap which seals airtight um, towards that minimal of overpressure. Uh, and this uh, needs to be looked at and not forgotten about. 
Yeah, that's right. And and we we can have um, silicon caps that are very tight fit over the top of uh, an isokinetic probe. But again, as technology improves and moves forward, Mark, as, as we're both quite well aware, you need a glove port to put the cap on. Uh, even with the current stainless steel caps, you need a glove port. And as we move to gloveless isolators, then the access is much more limited. So um, moving away from devices that need protection and need capping and therefore will be exposed to those gases kind of will be where we go. Alternatively, there are mechanical sealing, you know, sort of like robotic arms that can put caps on for you. But now it's what's the value of that robotic movement versus the value of the data. So that's obviously another one we can talk about when we start looking at the value of data. Yeah, but I look forward to that one. So let's cap it here for today. Um, if people need more details on this, they can contact their local PMS person. They can write an email to us at info at pmeasuring.com. Or you can check out our website where there's a real knowledge center and a lot of details about particle pass and particle counting. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Looking forward to next time. Take care. Indeed.